Good morning. If you haven't yet gotten a copy of the sermon outline, go ahead and pass those out down the aisle if you would, please. We've got just a few blanks today, and uh, there will be a lot of fodder for those of you who like to take uh, Bible nerd notes along the way. I'm going to approach it a little, a little differently than, than normal today. I usually start off being, uh, well, this is, this is a claim that you may not agree with, but, you know, I usually try to start off being funny and, and, and bring you into the topic, you know, but uh, we're not doing it that way this, this, this week. Um, we're just going to jump right into the text this week, into the text of Micah. We're uh, in this series, we're talking about how our expectations don't always meet up with the reality of what happens in our lives. And that even extends, uh, in a sense, maybe especially extends to our relationship with God. We talked last week about how the people of God expected one thing and received another. They expected military conquest. They expected someone to come and bring them political freedom. They expected a little bit more of a life of luxury. And they expected that kind of way of living for them. That's not exactly what they got. Because Jesus... Didn't exactly come to bring those things. And so we're going we're gonna to talk about those differences in expectations some today in, in Micah, the seventh chapter. For the people of God in Micah's day, in a sense, they didn't expect much. You see, the people of Micah's day were too happy with themselves and too sufficiently invested in their own power and their own luxuries to even notice their need to expect anything, let alone a Savior. Let's set the stage for today with telling you a little bit about Micah and the background of this prophet and this book of Micah. Micah was a prophet from Moresheth, M-O-R-E-S-H-E, T-H, M-O-R-E-S-H-E-T-H. We find that out in the first chapter, verse 1. Moresheth is a city about 22 miles southwest of Jerusalem that was situated in what they called the Shephelah. That's the lowland. You see, in Israel, the geography of the, of the people of Israel in that, in that uh, country there is some of the most extreme geography in the entire world. You have... You have the heights of the mountain peaks, and you have the lows of the lowlands. And that's where he is from in the southern kingdom of Judah. He ministered in the southern kingdom of Judah, and that's the first blank there. He ministered in the southern kingdom of Judah. That's where Micah's ministry, his prophetic ministry, happened. Now, he was never explicitly referred to as a, quote, prophet, like many of the prophets of the Old Testament were. But the source of his power as prophet was attributed to the Spirit of the Lord. If you're taking notes, we know that from verses like uh, 3.8. In uh, chapter 3, verse 8, it tells us that Micah was speaking by the Spirit of the Lord. We also know that from the New Testament in Second Peter, the first chapter, verses 20 to 21. In Second Peter, it tells us about Micah. His name means, who is like Yahweh? Who is like Yahweh? 
In fact, the book of Micah ends with that very question. It sort of states it like a rhetorical question. And in verse 18 of our passage today, which we'll read in just a second, Micah says, who is a God like you? (laughs) Obviously, the answer is no one. It's a rhetorical question. For the Bible nerds, he's prophesying during the late half of the 8th century B.C., from a little after 750 to a little later than 700 B.C., in that last half of the 8th century B.C. B.C. is confusing because it goes, you know, backwards. and it's, yeah. So it's the last half, even though it's the lower numbers. Now, the kingdoms of Israel at this point are divided. They're divided between the north Israel and the south Judah. This is the long period of the divided kingdom from about 931 after Solomon died and his son Rehoboam messed up everything. From about 931 B.C. to about 586 when the city of Jerusalem fell. A couple things about the book of Micah and its themes and what the book is about. First of all, and this is in your notes there, it's about judgment and forgiveness. The book of Micah is about these two themes of judgment from God because the the sins of the people began to be worthy of that kind of judgment. And then also about forgiveness. These are tensions that are talked about throughout Scripture, especially in the prophets. That the Lord is the judge who scatters his people for their transgressions and their sins. And he's also what we're calling the shepherd king, who in covenant faithfulness will gather and protect and forgive his people. So with that background, Micah writes as a prophet in order to bring God's lawsuit, his judgment against his people. Micah is sort of acting like a lawyer for God. Look at verse 8 in chapter 3 of Micah. In Micah 3.8 it says, says this. We already referred to this earlier. In 3.8 it says, But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. He says, but as for me, unlike the false prophets, for those taking notes, that's verse 5 earlier in that chapter. The false prophets are talked about there. But he says, but as for me, I'm filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord. That's how we know he was a prophet. The characteristic of being a prophet there. He declares to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. So he's sort of acting as a lawyer on God's behalf. And his people need to hear God's indictment of them. At this time in Israel's history, the Assyrians were the bad guys. The Assyrians were the reigning political force in that region of the world at the time. And they were not really interfering with the people of God. They were not really interfering with the Jews at the time. They were letting them live lives as they wanted to live. And so what happened in the history of the people of God at that time is that a very wealthy upper class began to emerge. Let's see if any of this list on your notes there sounds like modern-day America. Idolatry. These are listed in your notes there. 
And you can look up those verses as evidence of this later. Idolatry, seizure of property, the failure of civil and religious and prophetic leadership, the belief that personal sacrifice can satisfy, is able to satisfy God's divine justice or his wrath, corrupt business practices and violence. There's nothing new under the sun. This is modern-day America. This is the world now. Micah could have been a prophet today. Another important theme I want us to think about as we go into our text here is that a shepherd king, and this is in your notes, a shepherd king is the kind of king who, like a shepherd, will gather and deliver what the Old Testament calls a remnant. This is an important word in the Old Testament. This is that that branch of the people of God who are the true called of God people. You see, lots of Jews claimed, we are of Abraham. I am of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I can trace my lineage back to him. Sounds like a lot of us today, doesn't it? I've been a Christian for a long time, and my grandpa... The shepherd king is the one who gathers and delivers a remnant. And this deliverer is functioning as a new David... You see, the Messiah is coming from the line of David, and he's functioning as this new king, this new shepherd king. That's that's a term they use for David himself. And this new king will come from the very region that Micah is talking about, that's under Assyrian control. Look at Micah verse uh, 2 through 5 in chapter 5. Micah 5, verses 2 through 5a there. You've probably heard this kind of verse talked about in Christmas time as we, as we approach the season of Christmas. He says, but you, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days, has been predicted for a long time. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, referring to Mary. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. There's that theme of the shepherd king, shepherding his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, And they shall dwell secure. The people of God shall live in security and safety finally. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. So when we get to this morning's text, in chapter 7, we see with this background in mind that Micah has been looking. He's been searching for this remnant. Who are the true people? He's looking throughout, saying, who is honest like the Lord? Who speaks truth like the Lord? Who are these people, this remnant of the people of God, who are going to be gathered in by the shepherd king? So he started looking. Look at our chapter 7 here, verse 1. 
We'll set up our, our, our text today by looking at this. So when we come to this text, we begin to set the scene. Verse 1, he says this, Woe is me. He's lamenting. He says, Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. He's looking for food from the harvest, as in summer. He's looking, but there are no leftovers. There are no remnants. Verse 2, the godly has perished from the earth. He continues his search. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. He describes them by saying, they all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. He's searching for the godly remnant, but he says they're gone. There is none. Who are they? Where are they? Verse 3, their hands are in what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge, they ask for a bribe. And the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. Even the esteemed leaders, those with offices, those looked up to, don't fit the bill. Verse 4 says, the best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them a thorn hinge. Sounds like today. Sounds like all of the history of people who are sinners. One preacher who sounds a lot like Micah asks similar kinds of questions as these verses. He asks these questions of today's people of God. Why, he says, Why is every form imaginable, every form of immoral impurity rampant in our Bible-believing churches? Why is the divorce rate as high in the church as in the rest of the world? Why do the vast majority majority of Christians never introduce anyone to Christ? Why are our churches... Loaded with people who want a part-time, convenient, Christian weekend experience that's comfortable for them. And for Monday through Saturday, show no serious interest in spiritual growth. Why do pastors have to twist people's arms to give, to serve, to get involved in the work of ministry That's not as true here as everybody else, by the way. Why are church splits so common? Why are so many professing Christians barren, empty, hurting, confused, in spiritual bondage? Why is the world so utterly disinterested in what we have to offer? Where are the people of the remnant in our day. Where are they? Hoping against hope that salvation is not some far-off idea. Where are the Micahs calling for those who will rest solely on the forgiveness and the mercy of God? Let's read the rest of that text there, 7 through 20 in Micah. 
he says, in contrast to the people we've just described, he says, but as for me, a sharp contrast, he says, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Until this changes, God becomes our lawyer. Until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? The enemy was taunting the people of God, saying, Where is the salvation? Second half of verse 10, My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. Verse 11, a day for the building of your walls. In that day, the boundaries shall be far extended. The boundaries of God's salvation will be extended. Then he says, from Egypt to the river, from the sea to the mountain. In that day, salvation will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants by the fruit of their deeds. And then he says a prayer in verse 14. He says, shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. Those were the fertile areas, the first ones that the people of God gained entry and access to. As in the days when you came out of the lands of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands in their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. And they shall in turn, they shall turn in dread to the Lord our God and be in fear of you. The people of God did not expect judgment. But God brought it in the Assyrians later on. They didn't exactly expect the kind of forgiveness they got. They expected that they could earn it themselves, that their power was adequate, that their luxuries were sufficient for them to be saved. The picture painted here by Micah is not unlike the picture of our own world today. Ugly, difficult, full of suffering, full of pain. We expect one thing, receive something different. That's part of the nature of what it means to be human. Unmet expectations. Are you and I becoming the people of God, maturing into people who, despite unmet expectations, still hold out hope that Christmas is not just pretend trappings, but it is a real God come to save us? It may feel at times this side of heaven like everything is crashing 
around us. Like the world is degrading into deeper and into deeper sin. But it is exactly in that kind of context that feels most hopeless that the hope we look forward to at Advent will be met by God's faithfulness. Hope means hope when things feel hopeless. Otherwise, as G.K. Chesterton says, it is no virtue at all. As long as matters like the people of God in Micah's day and like some of us feel, as long as matters feel really hopeful, hope is just flattery or a platitude. It is only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a strength for the people of God. There's a school system in a large city that had a program to help children keep up with their schoolwork during times when their children had to stay in the city's hospitals. One day there was a teacher who was assigned to the program and received a call, a routine call like many others she had received, that was asking her to visit a particular child who was in the hospital. So she took the child's name and and room number and talked briefly with the child's regular class teacher. And the regular teacher said, we're studying nouns and adverbs in his class right now. And I'd be grateful if you could help him understand nouns and adverbs so he doesn't fall too far behind. So the hospital program teacher went to see the boy that afternoon No one had mentioned to this teacher that this boy had been very badly burned and was in great pain. She got there and was a little upset at the sight of this boy who was suffering. And she sort of stammered as she told him, I've been sent by your school to help you with nouns and adverbs. So she did and helped him with his nouns and adverbs and when she left, she sort of felt like she, she hadn't accomplished a whole lot. But the next day, the school teacher asked her, what did you do to that boy? The nurses began to notice the change. The teacher must have felt she'd done something wrong and began to apologize, but, but the nurses and the teacher said, no, 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 you don't know what I mean. We've been worried about that little boy, but ever since yesterday, his whole attitude has changed. He's fighting back, responding to treatment. The circumstances of his suffering have not determined his attitude. She said it's as though he has decided to live. Two weeks later, the boy explained that until that day, he had given up hope. He had given up hope until that teacher arrived. And everything changed when this little boy came to a simple realization and he expressed it this way. He said they wouldn't wouldn't send a teacher to work on nouns and adverbs with a boy who was going to die, would they? Friends, our lives feel like death. 
We are bruised, burned, beaten, suffering. The world around us feels chaotic and depraved. But we are people who have hope because God sent us a Savior knowing that he was going to save us. So we must be the people of God, the remnant of people who say in verse 7, As for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Let's pray.